From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and senior reporter for Marketplace Nancy Marshall-Genzer. Welcome Anita and Nancy. Hello. Thank you. Well, here are the issues. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's emotional speech to America stirred a new appetite on Capitol Hill for more aggressive steps to counter Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Zelensky called for new sanctions to be placed on Russian President Vladimir Putin and renewed calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. President Biden announced new military assistance for Ukraine that will include anti-aircraft defenses, drones and other weaponry. In addition, Biden announced an additional $800 million in assistance to Ukraine. But Zelensky's call for the U.S. to help establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine remains a widely unpopular idea. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg discussed several concrete measures to reinforce allies' security for the longer term. He underlined that this would require major increases in defense investment and welcomed the efforts of allies who have already announced increases. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with a high-level Chinese official in Rome this week, warning Beijing against strengthening Moscow's military. And here in the U.S., President Biden ensured the public that he is keenly aware of the ongoing economic crisis hitting families and low-income households. The Biden administration has been vocal about the obstacles, it says, is keeping it from getting the U.S. economy back on track. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Anita, Ukrainian President Zelensky invoked the attack on Pearl Harbor and the September 11th terror strikes on America as he pleaded with Congress to get more aid for his embattled country. The entire world reacted to this very passionate speech. What is your take on this? Well, I would characterize Zelensky's speech to the U.S. Congress as less emotional and more historical and kind of urgent. And I thought, as you mentioned, he brought up these two events that really galvanized the American public in favor of entering unpopular conflicts, basically. September 11th, which launched the 20-year global war on terror, and also, as we know, the 1941 Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, which signaled the U.S.'s entry into World War II. So he is really trying to motivate lawmakers to take this bait and to say, basically, an attack on one democratic country is an attack on all democratic, free-thinking countries. It's not clear that they're going to take the bait. And it's because, you know, President Biden and Congress as well are in this complicated situation where as tempting as it might be to give in to an ally who's extremely sympathetic, who's an underdog, who has the power of not just the performance of his appeal, but also, you know, just the hard, cold facts that 100 Ukrainian children have been killed in the last three weeks, which is a sobering, sobering fact. Even with all of those, U.S. involvement in a conflict like this will draw the U.S. into direct confrontation with nuclear armed Russia. And this is the decision that these lawmakers and the president have to make. And right now they're holding the line and saying, we will help Ukraine as much as we can. We will throw money at Ukraine. We will throw drones. We will throw pistols. We will throw anti-aircraft missiles. But we will not be pulled into this conflict. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that his speech to Congress elicited so much emotion and a standing ovation from members of Congress at the end. But you're right. You know, he specifically wants a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and he's definitely not getting that. Instead, President Biden did announce this $800 million aid package with 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems and 2,000 Javelin anti-tank missiles and 20 million rounds of small arms ammunition. And Ukraine can certainly use that, but that's not the biggest thing that Zelensky is asking for. No, and that's a good point. I'm glad you brought up the additional money. It's up to, as you said, like a billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. So how does this money compare to what other countries are doing? And will this be enough for them? Let me take the second question first and channel President Zelensky's answer to that, which would be, it's nice, we appreciate it, but what we really need is the skies to be closed. It is more than any other nation has, let me just say this very carefully, is known to have given to either side of this conflict. And I bring that up because we had a very interesting moment in the White House briefing room the other day when a reporter asked Jen Psaki if China had already given any assistance, military assistance to Russia. And her response was very telling. She said, I cannot share intelligence assessments. It was not a yes and it was not a no, but she said instead, I can't really talk about it. So in terms of funding one of the sides in this war, I think the US is head and shoulders above anyone else in the field. But is it enough? I think President Zelensky would clearly say no. And it's interesting that President Biden says it's getting, to quote him, exceedingly difficult to get new supplies into Ukraine. So even if the U.S. Congress does approve more aid, more military aid, the routes into Ukraine to deliver that aid are getting more difficult, more dangerous. The Biden administration says it's continuing to develop sanctions against top Russian officials. And Vladimir Zelensky actually has requested more sanctions on all Russian politicians who are supporting Putin. So certainly uh, the U.S. will continue doing that. But again, stopping short of what Zelensky really wants, clear skies over Ukraine. Yes. And as you all have pointed out, he's just not going to budge from this demand of a no-fly zone. It's an uncomfortable request, not just for President Biden, but for American lawmakers in general. And just one note, Estonia is the first NATO member nation to have a body formally call for the implementation of a no-fly zone. So how is President Biden seeing this and other NATO members in their handling of Estonia's support of a no-fly zone? I think the response, if she were asked about this, and she hasn't been specifically about this case, would be to say that NATO members are sovereign nations who can make their own defensive decisions. Estonia is significantly closer to Ukraine and to Russia than the United States is. And this is going to impact all of their security decisions. You know, Estonia is one of the three original Baltic republics that were among the first to break away from the former Soviet Union. And with President Putin saying that one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century is the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they are definitely more anxious about this conflict than the United States is. And I think that they're acting in their interest here. And I think that the White House has said that countries need to act in their own interest. So that is not surprising from a country that's so close to this very, very disturbing theater on which all of these tragic events are unfolding. And NATO members are so close. I mean, I'm seeing reports that drones landed in NATO territory there was a Russian airstrike just a few miles from Poland's border with Ukraine. There are Patriot anti-missile batteries set up in Poland and some other NATO countries. But 
we could have a situation where a NATO member is attacked, whether on purpose or not. And also, Secretary General Stoltenberg, he highlighted NATO's longstanding partnership with Ukraine and allies' strong support for the country. And he outlined NATO's rapid response to protect all allies. So what is the expectation with this? I mean, can they do anything more at this point? Well, Zelensky would certainly like Germany to cut off all gas imports from Russia. Germany says it is cutting off oil and coal imports, but it has to figure out how it would replace that gas from Russia and also how much pain it's willing to take in the form of higher gas prices if it does cut off that gas. And President Biden is expected to head to Brussels next week. What can we expect from this trip? The stated objective of this trip is to meet with NATO allies and talk about strengthening the eastern flank, because clearly the Russian advance is getting very far into Ukraine, as Nancy mentioned, just miles from the Polish border. And so it seems prudent to strengthen the western flank and to talk about how to do that. So that is the stated purpose. It's also going to be shoring up these alliances. It's also going to be making sure that there is unity among the NATO allies, which is such an elusive quality that Joe Biden likes to talk about how NATO is united like it's never been before, but that is something that constantly needs to be updated and tended and managed. So there's going to be a lot of that work as well. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing like FaceTime. This announcement of this meeting was made just after Russian missiles hit that uh, Ukrainian base near the Poland border. So it certainly won't help for Biden to have in-person meetings with these allies and maybe make a plan B for how to avoid being drawn into this war. Is there any attempt at trying to speak or negotiate with Putin at this point? That is the million ruble question, isn't it? Right now, it seems like the intermediaries between Biden and Putin are people like Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. And that's where we're leaving it for now. When asked, you know, if the president plans to speak directly with Putin. The White House has said in the midst of an invasion after he ignored our entreaties and our warnings, he doesn't seem like he's in a good place to talk. They're basically implying he also doesn't deserve the opportunity to interface with the U.S. leader after just ignoring, blatantly ignoring all of these warnings. So I don't see that happening immediately or anytime soon. Although we did see U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with his Russian counterpart. So the lines of communication are open and there is literally a phone line set up between NATO and Russia to try to avoid any missteps and for emergency communication. So it's not like there's no diplomacy happening, but it does seem like there's very little at this point. That's an excellent point. Nancy, do you know what color that phone is? Is it red? I hope so. I don't know. (laughs) That's what I would like to know, if that's actually still a thing, if we still have red (laughs) telephones. Well, let's take a quick break now. And when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about a question. Is China supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and senior reporter for Marketplace Nancy Marshall Genzer. 
Well, Anita, top advisors to Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met in Rome to discuss China's reported support for Russia in its invasion of Ukraine, even as the Kremlin denies reports that it has requested Chinese military equipment to use in the invasion. So how plausible is Chinese military aid to Russia? Wow, that is the million renminbi question, isn't it? Plausible, I think, is the short answer to that. It's very plausible that these conversations have happened. I'd like to just mention a new development on this. The White House announced that President Biden is going to be holding a secure phone call with President Xi to continue their open lines of communication, and they are going to focus on Ukraine, according to their statement. So there's definitely a lot of high-level discussion. Going back to that meeting that you mentioned between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiexie, who is a very high-level Chinese leader, they met for seven hours in a hotel in Rome, And we got no details on what they spoke about. That's pretty telling that there's just a lot there that isn't being discussed publicly, which I think is the most we can say about that. And I think it's pretty easy to read into what that means. Yeah. And State Department spokesman Ned Price was asked about that meeting. And all he would say was that the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan raised directly and very clearly concerns over China's support for Russia and saying that there would be implications for China if it were indeed supporting Russia. So, yeah, very vague comments from the State Department, but they're trying to make it clear that they were very firm. And I was checking and found an assessment of that situation from Sam Roganveen. He's director of the International Security Program at Australia's Lowy Institute. He says, given warnings from Washington, any Chinese aid would likely involve, quote, very basic stuff, unquote, such as ration packs for soldiers. He added that Russia would find it virtually impossible to integrate Chinese armaments into its armed forces on such short notice. Is this a fair assessment? I mean, if you just look at, for example, small arms weapon systems, a lot of NATO armies don't use the M16, the AR-15, which is the civilian equivalent of it. And the bullets are a different size. You have to be trained on cleaning it, taking it apart. Just on that very like low level, an individual soldier needs to know how to use her or his weapon. And I'm not sure what small arms the Chinese army uses, what larger vehicles they use, but there is obviously a training element. And it's not just a matter of like handing them the keys and saying, here you go, here's a tank. You've got to learn to drive it. You've got to learn to maneuver it. You've got to learn not to get yourself killed in it. It would make sense that logistic help is more reasonable than just giving them guns. And that may be all China really wants to do. I mean, these consequences that the State Department spokesman Ned Price were talking about They could be pretty severe. I mean, the U.S. is a giant market for Chinese exports. We import a ton from China and there could be consequences for trade with China. You could see U.S. equipment and software that China needs to make its products cut off so that China couldn't import those uh, U.S. components. There are a, a number of economic things that the U.S. could do to deter China here. And just to jump on that really quickly, Nancy, if you can't import these microchips and these specialty parts, then you can't compete in this cutthroat market for consumer electronics and you start to lose market share. And that's a very fickle consumer market. People will change at the drop of a hat and then not go back to other products. And so you need to tend that relationship very carefully as well, or you'll just lose customers. 
And China's official news agency is saying Beijing is committed to promoting negotiations to resolve what it calls the Ukraine conflict and China and the U.S. should strengthen dialogue. So their public line is pretty conciliatory. Yes, it's very interesting. And it is just very much a tightrope to be walking in the U.S. relations with China. And here in the U.S., President Biden said Russian President Vladimir Putin and the COVID-19 pandemic are to blame for record high inflation in the U.S. and maintain that rising prices have, quote, nothing to do, unquote, with his administration policies. So, Nancy, what is your take on this record of high inflation? Yeah, I mean, you really can't blame it at all on Russia. And even Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said, look, some of the stimulus that Congress passed, both under President Trump and President Biden, added to inflation. They may have flooded the economy with a little too much help and the economy got too hot. And Powell also took some responsibility for that and saying we kept interest rates too low for too long. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We kept thinking inflation would come down as the supply chain kinks unwound themselves, but they didn't. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine is putting pressure on oil and commodity prices. As usual, each side is partially correct. And yes, Russia is partially responsible for the increase in oil prices, but you can't blame it all on Putin. I just want to note that President Biden also stresses, and and I would love to get this embroidered on a pillow, the president does not control gas prices. He is not in control of that. If the president of the United States were in control of gas prices, it would be in his or her interest to keep them low and keep his population happy. And what the president has said is that the providers, the gas companies, are holding onto their high prices and in some ways pushing them up. And he can't make them stop, but he can call them out for it. And that's what he says he's doing. The president did order a release of some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but those releases were really too small to have much of an effect. And he has also said, look, there are no impediments to U.S. oil and gas companies drilling. They have the permits. They haven't been drilling because the prices were too low. As usual, a little bit of truth from both sides, but nobody is completely telling the truth. I'm just a little stunned, Nancy. I'm curious about what you drive for thinking that 30 million barrels of oil from the strategic reserves is not a lot. I'd not really considered the perspective of that. That sounds like a lot to me, an uneducated consumer with a small car, but I guess it's not a lot. Well, if you consider how much oil the U.S. consumes, that's just a drop in the bucket. Plus, it's not released all at once. It kind of dribbles out. And the same thing, you know, when the U.S. said it would stop importing oil from Russia, we only get about 3% of our oil from Russia and we don't import any natural gas from Russia. So these pronouncements make good headlines, but the effect doesn't add up to that much. This is a really important illustration, I think, of how you can use numbers to mislead the public. I think that's really important to bring up. And uh, yeah, I thought 30 million barrels was a lot. Likewise, I thought 700,000 barrels of Russian oil imported every day, which is the figure the White House gave, was a lot. But apparently that is not a lot. So it's amazing how big the American appetite is for petroleum products. 
Biden has been facing criticism from Republicans who have urged him to lift his executive orders that canceled the Keystone XL pipeline from Canada and froze new oil and gas leases on federal lands. And last week, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said restarting construction of the Keystone XL pipeline was not one of the options on the table to alleviate rising costs of gas for Americans. So is this option totally off the table? Well, first, again, putting it into perspective, Keystone is designed to carry up to uh, about 830,000 barrels of oil a day from Canada. And here's that statistic I was looking for. The U.S. consumes almost 20 million barrels of oil a day. So Keystone, 830,000 barrels a day. The U.S. consuming almost 20 million barrels of oil a day. You can see that's just a drop in the bucket, even if the Biden administration let Keystone go ahead. Just to press on that point, how is U.S. consumption of gas compared to other countries? If you're saying 20 million barrels a day, that's just under a tenth of a barrel for every man, woman and child in this country every day. I don't know how we compare with other countries. I'm sure we're up near the top, but I don't know if we are number one. I imagine we're pretty high up there. We do definitely like our vehicles and our open road. So that would track. Yeah. Okay. well, we will have to continue to follow this as I'm sure it is a developing story each day. And last but not least, this is a little surprise topic we wanted to get in. Anita, earlier you reminded us of a day that many people don't think about, and that is Equal Pay Day. Equal Pay Day is the symbolic day dedicated to raising awareness of the gender pay gap. In the United States, this date symbolizes how far into the year the average median woman must work in order to have earned what the average median man had earned the entire previous year. So I'll just pose that out to both of you and get your thoughts on this. Well, happy Equal Pay Day, ladies. It only took us three months to catch up with our male counterparts. That over the course of our lifetimes, according to these statistics about equal pay, the three of us being female are going to earn about $400,000 less than our male counterparts. So imagine a male version of you. A male version of you earns $400,000 more over his lifetime, which is a pretty penny. You can do a lot with $400,000. The White House is trying to do something about this. There's a new regulation that just applies to the federal workforce and it bans the use of prior salary history. So somebody trying to hire someone for a federal job can't say, well, what'd you make before? Because the administration says that's used to keep down wages and they say they're going to break this cycle. Of course, that would only apply to federal workers. There is some legislation that the White House is backing called the Paycheck Fairness Act, but it failed in the Senate last year. So don't hold your breath on that. The key, as Nancy mentioned, is that these protections only apply in the public sector. Now, the Obama administration had actually enacted a rule extending these rules to the private sector, but the Trump administration withdrew that. And we tried to ask the Biden administration if they were planning on reinstating that. And they haven't said anything and they haven't answered our questions about that. So it's unclear what they're going to do. Yes. And also, I noted that this Equal Pay Day, it also is broken down by ethnicity. 
And let me just state the obvious on the occasion of Equal Pay Day, which is that women of color, people who don't conform to like gender expectations and so on and so forth, are traditionally at the lower end of the pay spectrum, even in the same kind of jobs. So the shorthand for that is it's worse for you if you're a person of color, if you're a non-conforming person in any way, shape or form, it's even more dire. And the Department of Labor released some statistics saying Black women lost more than $39 billion. Hispanic women lost more than $46 billion in wages in 2019 compared to their white male counterparts because of this situation. And they said women of color are more likely to work in low-wage sectors like caregiving and hospitality. Which I think the pandemic has taught everybody, you know, we think of these as low skilled jobs, as jobs that are worthy of lower pay, but they're actually indispensable, essential jobs and they're difficult jobs. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, that's really good insight into this, but we'll have to wrap up on that note. My thanks to our panelists, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and senior reporter for Marketplace, Nancy Marshall-Genzer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. 